invite you to Exodus chapter 19. We will cross-reference a verse in Exodus chapter 3 before we get into our passage in Exodus chapter 19. But if you'll make your way there. The lion was too tame. That was my assessment of the recent C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the movie that was recently done. I thought the lion was too tame. The movie, I think, was well done, but I was disappointed with the way this great lion, Aslan, the Christ figure in Lewis's fictional series, was handled. In the book, if you have read it, Lewis repeatedly reminds his readers that Aslan is not a tame lion. Perhaps the producers were afraid to scare little children in the theaters. I'm not sure, but I really wish they hadn't worried about it. Scare them. It would have been a good thing. The Aslan of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, like the God of the Bible, inspires both comfort and terror. One of my favorite passages in the Chronicles was fittingly missing from the movie, fittingly for their purposes. I was very disappointed. But seated at the kitchen table of two talking beavers in this mythical world of Narnia, Mr. Beaver alerts the Pevensey children that Aslan, whom he refers to as the Lord of the Wood, is about to show up. They may be seeing him soon, this great lion. And Susan Pevensey, in particular, is apprehensive about meeting a lion. And she asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I tell you. And through their several journeys to and many adventures in this mythical land of Narnia, the Pevensey children experience over and over that Aslan is to be both feared and loved. That he is not safe, but that he is utterly good. As the story unfolds, these children are separated for a long time from Aslan's presence several books later, and they're being reunited with the great lion in the book uh, Prince Caspian, and Lewis describes the scene in these words. Hush, said the other four. It's the four children. Hush, for now Aslan had stopped and turned and stood facing them in the wood, looking so majestic. I hear it. that they felt as glad as anyone can who feels afraid, and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. It's beautiful. As glad as anyone can who feels afraid, and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. That should make perfect sense to those of us who have come to trust in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have come to know the wrath of God 
and have come to know as well His love and His mercy and His grace. If you do not have a reverent fear of God, I don't believe you've ever met the God of the Bible. The God of Scripture is no tame lion. He is a God to be feared and a God to be reverenced. He is a God whose both comforting and terrifying voice we must obey. Leading Israel to the base of Mount Sinai, God led this fledgling nation to face this reality in Exodus chapter 19. We must hear His voice and we must fear and obey. Exodus 19 is divided into two sections. If you want to look at that here, we're going to go back in just a moment to chapter 3, but Exodus chapter 19 is divided into two sections. The first 15 verses deal with the preparation of the people of Israel to meet with God on Mount Sinai. In verses 16 through 25, we have the actual meeting with God. And we must read this in light of chapter 3 and verse 12. Sometime earlier, God had spoken to Moses in this very region as he was shepherding Jethro's flock. And God says to him in chapter 3 and verse 12, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that is, sent Moses to Egypt to deliver the Israelites. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, we're back to the mountain. And Moses is here to serve the Lord, and he's brought the people. And Moses has learned so much as he has come through that Red Sea and through all of those ten plagues and through the trials in the wilderness that have pushed them to the very limits. He has come now with the people of God and he's a different man. He's much deeper. He's seen God. But he hasn't seen God fully yet. There's more to learn. As Lewis puts it in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy looks at Aslan after this long time away and she says, you seem bigger. And the lion says, yes, that's because you're older. For the older you get, the bigger I'll seem. And for Moses, this is it. And for the people of God, this is always the way that it is. The closer we get, the deeper we grow, the more mature we become in the things of God and in our knowledge of Him, the bigger He gets. Well, God is going to become very big again for Moses here on Mount Sinai and for all of Israel. But this takes a long period of preparation. And I think the text of Scripture here in Exodus 19 is written very purposely for this idea of lengthy preparation. Just over half of this chapter is preparing us to see God on the mountain, preparing Israel to meet Him there. Preparation is so important. In verse 1 we read chapter 19, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. So the scene is set. Interestingly, seven weeks after the exodus from Egyptian bondage. We could say it from Passover to Pentecost. Israel encamps now at the base of Mount Sinai. She will remain here for nearly a year. This is a time of extreme importance to Israel, and we need to understand that as we study the history of Israel, 
one-third of the Pentateuch, Exodus 19.1, through all the way through Numbers, chapter 10 and verse 10, is, a, is devoted to what happens during this period of time, this one-year period. First, God speaks to Israel, and for this encounter, Israel must first prepare. So she comes to the foot of this mountain, then in verse 3, while Moses goes up to God. Israel is encamping at the foot of the mountain, and Moses goes up to meet with the Lord. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. This makes sense to us. I think Moses climbing Mount Sinai, meeting at the summit with God, who reminds him of what he has done to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. This is crucial. I think it's important to understand this text. Eagles, I understand, uh, push their eaglets out of the nest, and if there's an eaglet that is not going to make the journey on this first flight, the mother eagle will swoop down and actually bear up that eaglet on her wing. And with those strong wings, fly back to a place of safety. This is what God does with Israel. Israel is never to forget that everything that God requires of her hinges on God's earlier deliverance of the nation. The God who issues his decrees to them is the God who has rescued them from bondage. His word is only for their good. This is the project that he has began with them from the very beginning. He will never leave off this project. And it's a good note for us here in this day to remember. The God who commands us is the God who rescues us. Now at verse 5, we get to the heart of this preparation. Now therefore, here's the message from God to Moses for the people. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. There's an entire series of sermons right in these two verses. Let us park on it for a moment. It is very vital. God is not promising here, let me say first of all, He is not promising here to choose Israel if she chooses to obey His law. That's not the right way to read the word if here. Our word if is a little bit too narrow uh, to translate the Hebrew text. But we don't want to read it that way. If you obey me, then you will become my treasured possession. Israel already is God's treasured possession. Remember chapter 4 of this book. Israel is my son, Pharaoh. Let my son go. And look at all that God has done for Israel. Israel is clearly already God's treasured possession. He has chosen this people from Abraham and following. So God is not promising to choose Israel here. Israel is already holy, already uniquely the people of God since, really, Genesis chapter 12 and the call to Abraham. The point is that serving as God's unique people is not an invitation to retire from moral obligation. It is a call to act like the people of God. One commentator says, The way to be this kind of people is to keep the covenant. To keep the covenant is to be this kind of people. 
And so Israel does not become God's people by obeying her, but Israel lives as God's people by obeying her. Obedience to what? Verse 5 says, to the covenant. Now this is strangely not identified here. What covenant? Is it talking about the covenant that is to come in chapter 20? I think certainly it is. There are laws that God lays out, a covenant between his people and between God, certainly referring ahead to that covenant. But I I think perhaps covenant is not defined here because Israel is operating right now under covenant. She is the people of Abraham. God has said to Abraham, I will make you a great people. I will bring you to this land of Palestine. You will inherit this land and live here. They're already under the covenant, the sign of the covenant circumcision. The males in Israel joining as part of the covenant people and all of their offspring identifying with this covenant, this promise from God. So the Mosaic covenant that we will be getting to in Exodus chapter 20 is really flowing out of the Abrahamic covenant. These are God's people. God has already chosen them. He is already working with them. It is primarily as Israel obeys God's word that she will display her unique status as God's chosen people. So you're not going to become my chosen people. We don't enter into the covenant for the first time here, but you are to live as my covenant people. And what does that mean? I'm choosing you. I have chosen you, and I want you to live as, first of all, three ideas here, a treasured possession. Verse 5, this status is not owing to something inherent in Israel. It's owing to what? To the fact that God has chosen to love them. God chose Israel in order that Israel would obey him. And she obeys, and as she obeys him, she will demonstrate that she is the apple of God's eye. It is through his word, it is through his directive to Israel that she demonstrates her treasured position. All of these three ideas flow together, but she will also be a kingdom of priests. Verse 6, as a nation, this means, Israel will intercede in behalf of the nations before God and representing God to the nations. Israel is an embedded nation. She belongs to God, but she's been embedded among the other nations to live out the truth of God among them. She has chosen as his possession, to serve the nations of the earth so that they are reconciled to God. And she is thirdly then to be a holy nation. This is the flip side of the same coin as kingdom of priests. She's a kingdom of priests. She is a holy nation. Israel will not serve the nations by becoming like them. She will serve the nations by remaining holy to the Lord obedient to his word, morally pure in living, and thus fundamentally different than all other nations. We've got to stop here and be alive. It would be very foolish for us to just say, well, that's Israel. Isn't that kind of a neat story, how God chose them uniquely? As the followers of Jesus Christ on this side of the cross, that's us. We have been put here in this world to change this world. We have been put here in this world to represent God to people who are lost in sin. That's us. Let's go again to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 by way of cross-reference. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. We need to soak in this text for a moment. And to see how the Apostle Peter again addresses the church 
of Jesus Christ in light of what we have just read in Exodus chapter 19. You'll notice the very same terminology. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I don't know if Peter was reading Exodus 19, but he may well have been. He's just saying the exact thing that God was saying about Israel to the believers that he's addressing. And I believe Peter addressing even Gentile believers. They're in the church of Jesus Christ, and now as his people are to proclaim that they have been delivered from darkness into light. Once, verse 10, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you then, as sojourners and exiles, you see it there, you're a holy people. You don't belong here. You're here for a time. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There are temptations, there are passions that are inherent to us. And as we give in to some of those passions of the flesh, as we give in to them, they wage war against our soul and they dim the light of the believer. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What does that have to do with anything? If we get the point, that's got everything to do with it. This is how we are to live in this life. We are to live before the Gentile nations. Well, am I to show off to other people? No, that's not the point. The point is you have been chosen as a priest to represent God to the people. They need to see you. They need to see that you live differently. They need to see that there is a moral purity and a foundation in your life, a hope that is different from anything that they know or have. They need to see this. Or they'll be left in the darkness and not find the light by God's grace. You're that holy nation. And thus you are to be fundamentally different from all others, from the Gentiles who you are reaching. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. That's one thing. And secondly, glorify God on the day of visitation. There may be a day in which the light of God dawns upon them, and they will see in your light, I know there's a holy people. There's a people that has hope. There's a people that has faith. There's a people that rests in God May they join those people. Christian, we need to make this even a bit more pointed and personal, I think. Let's all say this together in our own hearts, look in the mirror, and come to terms with this. We were not saved to merely escape hell. We were not saved to live for ourselves. Are we a uniquely privileged people? Amen? We are uniquely called by God to be His own, to be a treasured possession, to have an inheritance with Christ in eternity. How unique. God has not given us that simply because for some reason He wants us to escape hell. 
as if that's the end of the story. He wants us to live distinctively and obediently to him such that we are light to the lost world around us. And that means, as Peter brings out here so pointedly and so carefully, that the sins of the flesh wage war against our souls. Your sin does not just then affect you, but as a kingdom of priests, it dims the light this world so desperately needs to see. We need to walk in purity as the people of God. This is why he's called us. This is why we are his treasured possession that people may see in us the transforming power of God. Back to Exodus 19. There's quite a bit there in verses 5 and 6. But pressing on to verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. They're glorious words. He climbs back down the mountain. He assembles these elders and he passes God's word on to them who, and they then apparently inform the people. For in verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And I hope that response is in our own heart as we think of ourselves as priests before God to this world in which we live. I've been called to this. I will live for God. We will do it, they say. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. He functions clearly here as a mediator. More on that in a, in a, in a bit. But he functions as a mediator between Israel and God. He reports their words. And the Lord, verse 9, said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. This cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire that has been leading the people of Israel is going to come to this mountain and God is going to speak to Moses such that the people never miss the point that he is speaking for God. They've been picking this up little by little. They're a little bit thick-headed. But they've been getting this idea that, that Moses may in fact be, have something special with God. But they're never going to doubt it again, God says, at this point. Now, of course, they'll rebel against it. We know the future a bit. But he is going to establish this point as he comes in this cloud. So the Israelites will soon hear from God and realize Moses' position. Then, as we look at the end of verse 9, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. So there's going to be a, a meeting with God which involves a consecration of the people. Verse 11, be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, that is, this guy breaks through the boundary and goes up into the mountain, nobody touches him but he shall be stoned or shot. You can't reach him with a stone, you reach him with an arrow, and you take him out. Whether beast or man. I mean, this had to be fairly complicated. They had to make sure all the beasts were in tow. Or, you know, Rover's going to be in trouble here. So, I mean, keep everybody in. 
Nobody gets near the mountain. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now wait a minute. That's the mountain where if we step onto it, we die. Yeah, that mountain. The trumpet will sound and you will come up to it. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. Well, a little bit of insight into the cultures needed here. No washing machines. You didn't have a wardrobe. You might have had an extra tunic, possibly a third, something like that, but you didn't have a closet with clothes hanging in there in which you would always choose out clean clothes. It was, they were not like Americans, and uh, we're happy for the sweet-smelling place in which we live, but they didn't wash their clothes all the time. They did when they had opportunity, but they're going to all wash their clothes now. Every one of them. You're going to come before God prepared This is a solemn occasion, and it requires clean clothing. It's something like a wedding. If anybody came to a wedding in in shorts and a t-shirt, nobody's going to probably kick them out or be too terribly worried about it, but we dress up to come to a wedding because we say this is a very solemn occasion. And by dressing up, we kind of say to everybody else, I'm taking this seriously. I put on new clothes. I took a shower. I'm fresh. I'm here. I'm ready for the wedding. And God says to Moses, make sure all the people are ready for this. And they are obviously to set boundaries around the mountain. That is to define a place past which no one walks. No one was to approach the mountain until they heard the ram's horn blown as a signal. And no one was to cross over that boundary encircling the mountain at its base. No one. Not an animal. Not a human being. And if anyone did... The rescuers were not even permitted to cross the line. They just had to fire at that person and bring them down. God is not messing around here. He's saying at the base of that sign, essentially, there will be this sign, no trespassers, violators, shot. It's serious. Included in this preparation is sexual abstinence. That's the idea of don't go near a woman. It's a, it's a euphemism to saying don't, there's to be no sexual relations. That is, that even couples in the intimacy of their own relationship were to set aside this very natural and God-given privilege for one another, to set it aside as a time of preparation. They were going to meet with God. And in these next days, as they wash their clothes and as they set up the boundary and as they contemplate what they're going to do, even normal relationships are set aside for consecration. Anticipation fills the air as the people prepare themselves to meet with God. What is this going to be like? We've seen his cloud and we know what he can do, but now he's saying that he's actually going to come in his presence in a unique way that we've not seen before. What's this going to be like? I mean, clearly God's getting their attention, all this preparation that's going on, but they have no idea. In verses 16 and following, Israel actually encounters the presence of God, and it is a troubling scene. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. I love thunderstorms. I I love them. Not the 
4 a.m. ones, but the other ones. I, I, I love the thunderstorms. But you know, we're always experiencing thunderstorms inside a house, generally, aren't we? You get right out there in the elements with nothing to protect you but a tent. And it's a whole different experience. Perhaps you've been stuck in one outside sometime and the sound of that thunder and the flashes of lightning can be rather unnerving. But here, as far as we can see and tell, this thunder and lightning is not going on all around them. It's, going on top, it's just on top of this mountain. And it's really freaking them out. This is scary. And along with it, there's this mysterious trumpet sound. Now, some have said this is really just the sound of the wind. I, I'm, I'm doubtful about that because as we look at the theme of the trumpet blast in Scripture, it always announces the coming of the king. Well, this trumpet blasts, and it just keeps blasting. And this sound, along with the thunder and the lightning, shakes everybody. They're trembling and fearful. It's interesting to note here, the Canaanite Egyptian gods were equated with natural phenomena. In other words, you had the gods of rocks and the gods of trees and the gods of sun and the gods of rain and the gods of thunder, the gods of lightning and all of these ideas. By contrast, the God of Scripture is never confused with His creation. Rather, God employs nature here to arrest the attention of His people so that they approach Him. He rules over the universe. He, he created the world and he uses the natural phenomenon as his tool and says, listen up, I'm here. And the people tremble. They're overwhelmed. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. That verse should really stand out to us and, and scream a message. Wait a minute. There's this fearful sound and light show on the top of this mountain, which direction are you going to go? I mean, the natural direction is to turn around and go the other way into the wilderness, and there's lots of territory there to go. But interestingly, God says, come up to the mountain. They're overwhelmed, they tremble with fear, yet strangely, they're not to run, but to get closer. Again, I think in his genius, C.S. Lewis was back on this point. We considered earlier the children in Prince Caspian who see Aslan after a long interval while accompanying them is this dwarf named Trumpkin who doesn't believe in Aslan. It's all myth. There's no god like that. There's or no lion like that. Well, Trumpkin sees Aslan for the first time and it shakes him to the core of his being. He's scared to death. And Lewis says this in Prince Caspian, that Trumpkin did the only sensible thing he could have done. That is, instead of bolting, he tottered toward Aslan. There it is. You're scared to death in the presence of God, but you totter forward, not backward. You don't run away. You slowly Shuffle forward. The fear of God is always a fear 
that draws us in. Ironically, the more you fear God, in the best sense of the term, the closer you want to get to Him. So we see here Israel tottering toward God. This is not a God who intends to scare you away. He is a God who intends to scare you wholly. That we might experience the joy of His company. As one commentator puts it, it is important that they take that they can take precautions. For this is not a danger to be escaped from, but to be approached as nearly as possible. Verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. I don't know all that's going on there, but it was quite a display, a nerve-wracking display. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. I think the idea being a thunderous answer from the Lord. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This mountain, then, is something of a temporary staging ground where God's glorious presence is displayed. This awesome display of power is intended to set the scene for God's message to His people. God calls Moses, Israel's representative, to climb the mountain to receive that message from God. And as verse 18 has already said, verse 20 stresses the point that Moses indeed climbs the mountain. Keep this in mind and keep track of Moses' mileage here. Very interesting. We'll come back to that. But at verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. That will come into bear later in a later chapter. Now, where is Moses here? He's been climbing up this mountain and down this mountain a few times. We're going to, by God's grace, look at some slides tonight of the teen trip to Alaska. And we climbed a mountain there. And I tell you, there wasn't anybody that was uh, too terribly fresh by the time we got up there. Some more than others. But it's hard to climb a mountain. And he's gone up and back down and back up and back down. And God says, I want you to go back down and talk to the people. And I, 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 We don't want to be overly light here, but you can kind of see Moses saying, God, they already know this. I really got to go back down there again? They've already got, you've already told us that we can't go past these limits and touch the mountain. And what does God say? Oh, that's right, Moses. I'm sorry, I forgot. Yes, I did tell you that. Okay, fine. That's not what he says. What he does is tells him again. <laughs> Verse 24. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. There's some new information. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. He's already said this, and now three times. Well, anybody who's a parent understands this. You say something to the kids, and they say, You've said that already. And what do you say? You just say it again. Sometimes you have to do that. Yes, we do repeat very important commands sometimes. 
do not cross the street. I know that. Do not cross the street. You've told me that already. Do not cross the street, God says to his children. Don't cross me. We learn, well, let me read verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them God's word. You see, this is the whole point of the fire and the smoke and the lightning and the thunder. The whole point is that the people would hear the word of God. What we cannot miss in this, as I said earlier, let's go back to it, is that Moses has put on some mileage here. He serves as Israel's mediator and representative before God. They cannot come up to God and run into His presence. But Moses can represent them to God. So he goes up the mountain in verse 3 and back down again in verse 7 and up again in verse 9 and back down again in verse 14 and up again in verse 20 and back down again in verse 25. God can whisper in Moses' ear. He's quite capable of this. And it, this, I mean, think about the amount of time this takes and the amount of effort as Moses keeps making this journey up to the top of this mountain. God is sending a message to the people. You can only come to me through my representative. He chooses this painstaking approach to demonstrate his holiness and his transcendence. Which direction does God come here? He comes down to the top of the mountain. Only Moses comes up from the earth to meet with God. In this pinnacle place, God has come down to meet with his people, and Moses represents them as he comes up. And it says to Israel very clearly and pointedly that God cannot be approached flippantly or casually or on our own terms. And for what is God preparing the Israelites? There's just tremendous connections here that by God's grace we'll be able to unpack over the weeks ahead. But here is the tabernacle, isn't it? You have the high priest in the Holy of Holies. We have Moses at the top of the mountain. You have the priesthood in the holy place later who will climb up part of this mountain. You have the Levites in the courtyard. You have the people outside the fence. And you have the Gentiles outside the camp. We must come to God in careful approach on His terms. And I think by way of application, it certainly alerts us to the fact that as God sees it, worship is not all about us. The worship of God is not to be a star-studded entertainment event. It's to be a thoughtful approach to a holy God. It is to be filled with joy and gladness and enthusiasm and the grace of God. But it's not a game. There is a sense in which we must come as we are before the Lord. And we praise God for that truth. Who else, who would be there if we couldn't come that way? We need to come before God as we are. But there is a sense in which we dare not do so. We do not come in our own merit, in our own strength, as we are before God. You remember what God said to Moses himself in chapter 3, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. 
Here Israel must wash her clothes and prepare her hearts through consecration to stand just at the foot of the mountain. We learn also there, as we think of Israel, this tottering approach to God teaches us to know God for who He really is. And it is an approach that we make in this point in time through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator. We have a greater mediator than Moses. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who has, as the Lamb of God, this whole sacrificial system that will come in Exodus 20 all and through into the book of Leviticus particularly. This whole sacrificial system has been completed by Jesus Christ. And we can come into the presence of God on the authority of Christ, our great high priest. Let's turn back to Hebrews and just make some connections here for a few moments. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews 4 and verse 14 encourages us that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now Israel made a confession there at the mount. We will obey the voice of the Lord. But our high priest does not take us simply to this mountain where there is thundering and lightning, but he has taken us into the very presence of God. 4 verse 15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That is unbelievably good news. That is unique privilege. Did you hear what he said in light of Exodus chapter 19? And how I pity those who take Exodus 19 and say, well, that's a different God. That's a God of the Israelites, this kind of mean-spirited, nasty old God that we don't have anymore, and the New Testament doesn't know anything about that God. It's a God of love and grace and mercy not a God of holiness and fear. They've missed the whole privilege. He's the same God. But we are called to come with confidence right to the top of the hill. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This God is no tame lion. He's no tame lion. And He's not a God who thinks the way we think. So when we come to Him for grace, He does not always answer the way that we wish. But what He provides is mercy and grace. He will pour it out. And we're called to come confidently. Is the author of Hebrews thinking of Exodus 19 in any way here? We read it earlier, chapter 12. If you attended carefully to the reading of the Word as Pastor Pratt presented it to us this morning, you know the answer. 
Chapter 12 and verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We're not there yet. That's Exodus 20. Did anybody hear that first verse as pastor read it and go, what in the world, is, what's going on here? Wait, wait a minute. I mean, this is kind of a confusing idea if you don't know the Old Testament context. We haven't come to that kind of a mountain. Verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. This is, this is trying to their souls, this whole meeting. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses himself, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This martyr, Jesus Christ, this one who has laid down his life and presented his blood to the Father, he beckons you in the door. You can come into the throne room. You can stand before God, not in your own strength and not because the, the clothing of your heart is as clear as it should be, but because Jesus is your high priest. We don't stand before thunder and lightning with limits at the bottom of the mountain. Jesus has brought us right in before God. And so, says the author in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. People of God, hear this. Our God warns us from heaven. And you may say, I don't hear him. I don't see him. He's warning us from heaven. He warns us in his word. It may not be the lightning and the thunder and the storm and this thunderous voice and these trumpets sounding and getting our attention, but God, make no mistake, is warning us from heaven now in his word. And what is he saying to us 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, the created order, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain, God, his home. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This word that he sends from heaven is that we would worship him with reverence and awe and know that he is a consuming fire and thus stand in the security of Jesus Christ with great joy. We fear God, but not as Israel did. For the full fury of God's consuming wrath against our sin has been paid in behalf of believers by Christ's death and resurrection. Christ has won the victory over death and sin. We hear his voice from heaven and we walk in obedience to his voice on earth until he calls us home. 
One day He will shake the earth again. One day He will even shake the heavens. But the born-again believer in Jesus will rest safely in His arms. Our God is a consuming fire, and we rest under His wings. So we can be as glad as anyone can who feels afraid, and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. And we can say with the psalmist, Psalm 211, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What a beautiful phrase. Rejoice with trembling. I would suggest that's the only kind of fear in which we can rejoice is the fear of God. When we can rejoice with trembling, we know the awesomeness, the greatness of our God, but we come right into His throne room because He's our Father and we rejoice. Joy and fear. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, for your goodness to us. Forgive us for hastening into your presence, even now. Oh God, may we sense the wonder and the majesty of you, our great God, who is a consuming fire. God, I pray that we'd rejoice with trembling. That there would be a sense of who you are, of who we are, and of the privileged status that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for these certainly elementary lessons of the Old Testament. We can fill in so much more. But we thank you, God, to go back to our foundation and to remember why it is that we rejoice over sins forgiven and over a right standing with you in heaven. Thank you, our Father. Hear the cry of your people. Hear the cry of the Spirit who raises up prayers right now that we cannot articulate. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ whose blood has been shed for us and who intercedes at your right hand. We thank you. We give you praise. Lord, we fear in this world that the thought and the notion of the fear of God is slipping away, at least in our culture, in the, in the West. Forgive us, God, for turning you into some sort of celestial psychologist. Forgive us for treating you as a ticket to heaven. Oh God, forgive our sin for being so enamored with this world. And help us by the eye of faith to live righteously. To shine as light among the Gentiles. To hear your voice from heaven. And to walk in obedience. God, may it call forth from us that cry of Israel. We will do it. 
We will keep your covenant. We will obey your word. May that desire be in our hearts, and God, may we do better than they in the follow-through. Help us by your grace to love your word and your truth and to follow through and become the people that you want us to be. May this church be a place in which your awesome greatness is exalted and honored, where we do not run from your severity and wrath and judgment, but where we acknowledge that you are a God of authority and power and absolute purity and justice. And Lord, may this then become a cradle, a nest, a place of refuge in which we always rejoice with greater depth of meaning in your love and mercy, your electing grace. Please, Father, meet us in our need and draw to the light anyone who is yet separated from Christ as Savior. This is our prayer for them. We pray that your name would be hallowed in the way that we respond to the great truth that you have revealed to us in your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.